the podcast. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here again today. And sure, it's raining, but it's going to be a warm day. And, and last week was such a mess. We're, we're just grateful to be here, to be back together, to come back in this way, to study your word, to, to hear the story of Samuel and talk about it, and the story of the ark, and, and um, just, just fill us with lots of energy today and lots of enthusiasm and bring to our hearts and minds the questions that we have around these sections of scripture. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, one more thing I need to do here. There are so many steps involved in this. I think that'll work. I don't know. Well, I'm going to put it on airplane hold too. Okay, well, all right, very good. Oh, technology. You should have seen me at 1 o'clock yesterday afternoon. The system that I used for my, the 3 o'clock streaming class, it was not working. And I was not a happy guy. I don't think I said any bad words, but I'm, I thought a few. Is that the same thing? <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah, Patty, Patty can tell um, what's going on with me. So... What I'd like to do is have you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. I will do the same thing. That's right there at the call of young Samuel because just, just to talk about for a second where we have been in the past on this um, Hannah, Samuel's mother, could not conceive and she went to the Lord in prayer and God gave her a child and she dedicated that child to God's service. And so he has been growing up in the tabernacle, which is in this drawing, which I've been using a good bit, is the structure that the white arrow is pointing to. And in that, the course of all that, we met the old man Eli, the high priest. Um, and his two evil sons, Hophni and Phinehas, right? So now we come to focus upon Samuel again. And I think what I want to do is just sort of plunge in, unless there's any questions anybody has before we get started. This is the place we bring them. Okay, we'll look at chapter 3, verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before Yahweh under Eli. In those days, the word of Yahweh was rare. There were not many visions. This is a way of expressing the distance between God and his people, between um, uh, God and Eli and his e wicked sons. Think back to the, remember, the, 1 Samuel follows the book of Judges on the timeline. So the last verse of the book of Judges is what? In that time there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's a damning verse. Because the king of the Israelites is God. And they are not to do what is right in their own eyes. They are to do what is right in God's eyes. And they had entered into a covenant with God at the foot of Mount Sinai. So they can't plead ignorance. All they can plead is an unwillingness to live as God has showed them to, to live and to live in the way that they were created to live, to love God and to love others. So in those days, so this is, this is a verse which is, wow, not good. In those days, the word of Yahweh was rare and there were not many visions. Now one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. I don't know what that place is, but it's his usual place. Everybody I know likes their usual place. In a classroom setting, whatever it is, sanctuary. 
You can take attendance because everybody's in their usual place on the right on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so he has a usual place. Now the lamp of God had not yet gone out, okay? Meaning that the oil in the lamp was still burning. The lamp was still burning, so it's what twilight, and maybe early evening. And Samuel was lying down in the house of Yahweh. He's lying down in the tabernacle, okay? Which Samuel could do. It's only to going behind the curtain that is restricted. Um, the priest can enter into the tabernacle, and he is a, a boy being brought up basically in the priesthood. Samuel was lying down in the house of Yahweh where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's interesting, isn't it? Okay, perhaps the writer means to imply that Samuel has actually gone back behind the curtain, assuming the curtain's even there, I've told you, we envision this stuff always being constant from year to year and decade to decade and century to century. Um, the curtain is supposed to be there, but maybe it's not even there anymore. Maybe he just went back behind the curtain. Then Yahweh, verse 4, then Yahweh called Samuel. And Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here, here I am, Eli, you called me, you called me, man. And probably not that way, right? <laughs> he just went and tugged on, on Eli's clothing probably and said, okay, here I am, you called me. And Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So Samuel went back and he lay down. And again Yahweh called Samuel. And Samuel got up and he went to Eli and said, Okay, here I am. You called me. My son, Eli, said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Did you ever have kids that didn't want to stay in bed? Yeah. Right? Right? You, you can imagine what Eli, what's going through Eli's mind at this point. That, oh, he just, I can't get, that kid won't stay in bed. He's supposed to be lying down somewhere, leaving me alone because I'm in my usual place and I'm comfortable. I don't want to be bothered. And he's having some kind of dreams or something. And he thinks I'm calling him. So he sends him back. A second time. A second time he sends him back, right? Verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh. The word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him, which means the boy is not yet a prophet. A prophet is someone, what is a prophet? A prophet is not somebody who prognosticates about the future or looks at crystal balls, not like, okay, I'm old enough, Gene Dixon or someone like that if you're old like me. Um, prophets are people who tell forth the word of God. They're much less concerned with foretelling the future. They tell forth the word of God. They call the people back to God. And there's a big need for it in Israel at this time. How do we know there's a big need for it? Well, I'll go back up to the verse that says, In those days the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. So the word of the Lord is not being spread among the Israelites. Nobody is calling them back to God. And little Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, verse 7. The word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him. And a third time Yahweh called Samuel. And Samuel got up and he went to Eli and he said, Here I am. You called me. And then Eli realized that Yahweh was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Yahweh, for your servant is listening. Now, this is really a good moment for Eli, right? Third time around, Eli realizes the kid doesn't, he's not just having trouble staying asleep or something. God is calling him. And Eli respects that. It's a good moment for Eli. 
Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place after the third time. And Yahweh came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. So Yahweh came and stood there. Now, God does not have a body. The Jews didn't believe God had a body. The rabbis didn't believe God had a body because it would mean God could only be in one place at one time. So, what, so what is, what's being spoken of here? That the immediate presence of God is right there next to Samuel. The immediate, deep, surprising, amazing, wondrous presence of God is right there with Samuel. Not surprising since he's laying down where the Ark of the Covenant is because if I, let me show you a picture of the Ark. Well, that's kind of a fancy one. Let me go to this one first. This is a simple drawing of the Ark. An Ark just means box. So you have a box. And there are four rings on the box so that pole can be slipped through so it can be carried because these are nomadic people, right? And on the top of the box there is a cover called the mercy seat. And on top of the cover are, there are two cherubim whose wings are touching. Okay? So this is a fancier version of it. The key thing to know is that this mercy seat, this top cover on which the cherubim's wings are touching, that's what I like about this drawing, is um, it's where the high, Moses or subsequently the high priest would go to meet God. It's, if you put it in like a science-y, science fiction-y kind of context, it's like above the mercy seat is the portal to the direct presence of God. It, uh, Moses goes in, one, there's a story one time where Moses goes in, he encounters God above the mercy seat, he comes out, he's just glowing with the immediate presence of God. And so it's saying something really important when it says that the Lord stood there next to Samuel. You know, you might ask me, well, gosh, you know, what would a video camera capture? I don't have any idea. I don't have any idea. That's, that, that's not the writer's concern. You know, we Westerners are probably think that way, but that's not what the writer's concerned with. The writer's concerned with saying that Yahweh has come. He has come to Samuel. This is a big moment, a huge moment, for the land is, is void of God's word. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Even the high priest's sons are wicked. Hophni and Phinehas. So the Lord came and he stood there calling as at the other time Samuel. Samuel. Not exactly the same. This time he says the boy's name twice. And you realize this is, whew, this is a moment. And Samuel says, speak for your servant is listening. Exactly what Eli told him to say. Wow, exactly the right thing to say. Scott, yes. When it says the Lord came and stood there, any chance that's another theophany? To an extent, we, we don't, you know, so I'm being asked whether this is a theophany. We, you know, if, I don't know what he's experiencing. A, a theophany is a, um, is some manifestation of God's presence in thunder, lightning, or even the sound of sheer silence. So, I'm guessing that Samuel is seeing something. I don't know what. I don't know what. You know, if I... But it is the immediate presence of God that is there with the boy. That's the thing to get. That's the thing to get. Yes? Yes, yes. He doesn't say he's looking at the face of God. He, he's got his 
the Lord, look at the words. It's all they say. They're very short. Most of the questions you have, because we want to imagine exactly how everything was, because we want to imagine it on a movie screen or something like that, it doesn't concern itself. Sometimes it does in Scripture. Sometimes the prophets will give you these long, detailed depictions of what they see. It was like this, it was like this, it was like this. But here, all we get is this simple statement that Yahweh came and stood by him. That's it. Over here, was there a hand up? Yes? Well, I, it doesn't say, does it? So it doesn't say how old he was. So he's, he's old enough to follow instructions well. He is old enough to, for God to come to him. Um, a lot of times you see paintings of Samuel where he's like a really little kid. I don't think he's probably such a really little kid. But we don't really know. I picture him being closer to the age um, of uh, 11 or 12 because when you might be called to a vocation in this way and be put upon, put on your life's work but it doesn't tell us you know well 12 because getting almost to the age of now they would do a bar mitzvah right that makes, that makes sense to me, more so than the paintings where you see where he's just a little, they're adorable paintings. He, he's getting close to being a man. You know, that's what, that's what a bar mitzvah is, is this transition from boyhood to manhood. Okay. Now, let's look at what God says to him, because that's the focus. And Yahweh said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. I love that. God's going to make... See, because people aren't hearing God. They're not hearing the word of God. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And he's going to make their ears tingle. Everybody. They're going to hear this and they're going to know that something big is happening. God is coming to not only Samuel, God is coming to them. God is the one who's going to reach out and cross the divide created by their basic abandonment of God and insistence upon doing what is right in their own eyes. I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. Because you will remember that um, because of Eli and his wicked sons, whom Eli tolerated, um, God said that, you know, their end would come. And you'll see that it's not going to take long in the book of Samuel to get there. Verse 13, For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Eli is the high priest of Israel. And sure, Phineas and Hophni are his sons, but they blasphemed God in ways we were told about here and I'm sure in other ways. And the old man did nothing. And he should have done something. I, I get, you know, I, I get that it can be hard to um, to speak up about grown children. It can be hard to um, and, you know. Patty and I like to watch crime dramas, murder mysteries. And you know, sometimes in those, the, you know, the parents are confronted with the fact that they, they really know their son or daughter, grown, committed the crime. And sometimes in the dramas, they keep it to themselves, and other times they don't. They come forward. And they should come forward. I understand the feelings are difficult, and it's, diff and it's hard, but they should come forward. In this case, God says to Eli, no. They blaspheme God, and he failed to restrain them. 
Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. There's, there, they've come to the point where there's no sacrifice they can make, no offering they can make, and their house will come to an end. Now I imagine little Samuel, maybe 12, little, not so little, he's still 12 is pretty young. That would be kind of overwhelming because he's been with Eli all of these years. Where did he grow up? With his family? Hannah and the husband? No. He grew up here in the temple with Eli and, and but he saw the wicked sons. He wasn't, the boy's not blind. The boy would have seen what was going on. So it is, I guess, for Samuel, would it not be a word of an example of how deeply it matters that people respect God and that they live up to the covenant that they made with God? I think it does. Yes. So is this, is this then an unpardonable sin? It doesn't say that. It just says no offering or atoning sacrifice could close the gap. But what, what, what God does, what God, what God does, you know, with Eli and his sons, we don't, we don't know in terms of some, you know, long term, their judgment and all that kind of thing. It's just saying, look, you have gone so far with this that there is no atoning for the sin you committed. And of course, all the offerings and sacrifices are going to be swept away in about maybe a thousand years, more, 1100 years when Jesus comes on the scene, right? And the temple is destroyed, and so the whole system of sacrifices and atonement will go away. But it's clearly, like you're implying, a really big, big moment for them. And he's just, what, to me, what does it, God kind of say to them? You can't hide behind your priesthood anymore. You can't run in and do these sacrifices that you don't really respect anyway and think that that's going to make everything all right. I like that. I I like that way of putting it. I was thinking that I know Paul says there's only one unpardonable sin, and that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Which is actually from the from the Gospels. Yes. Oh, sorry. Which Gospel? Maybe Mark. Okay. So anyway, here he's saying so. his sons blaspheme God. I do realize God and the Holy Spirit really are one. Yes. So what does it mean to blaspheme, really? Okay, is it simply taking the Lord's name in vain, or is there something deeper in it? Is there something deeper in the passage from the Gospels? Is there something deeper here? You know, the wise commentators I've read on this said it's really more like you know the truth about God. You know the truth about God, but you ignore it anyway. You ignore the truth and you ignore it. You ignore the truth and you still will um, uh, steal the offerings brought by people or um, uh, sleep, have sex with the women in, with women in the temple. You know what the truth is. And, and you and you ignore it. But generally, that unpardonable sin stuff, the best advice I ever got was this. I've read, I don't know who, this is probably more than a, one person. If you think you've committed it, you probably haven't. If, it, if you're worried about it, you probably haven't. Because these sons aren't worried about anything. How about that? That helpful? I hope so in a small way. Okay. So, Samuel lay down until morning, 
and then open the doors of the house of Yahweh. Let me go back to my... Open the doors to the house of Yahweh. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But of course, Eli has already heard the words of the previous chapter. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. And Samuel answered, Here I am. Eli asked, Well, what was it he said to you? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide anything from me that he told you. So Samuel told him everything hiding nothing from Eli. And then Eli said, He is Yahweh. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Another good moment for Eli. Okay? So it was a good moment for, him, for Eli when Eli sent Samuel back the third time. Said, this really is God calling you, so go back and listen. And it's a good moment here. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't argue. He just simply says, He is Yahweh, let him do what is good in his own eyes. That's a pretty good philosophy of life. Um, verse 19. Now Yahweh was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, kind of like in my class Sunday, I brought up the passage, the little sentence from Luke about Jesus that he. Um, he, he, grew, he, he grew and found favor with God. Same idea. Samuel's growing up. He's growing up in wisdom. He's growing up in favor. And, and God made sure that none of Samuel's words fell to the ground, which meant that he was going to make sure that Samuel was a prophet whose words were heard and attended to, not ignored. That's what the fall to the ground part is, ignored. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, in the north to the south, that's what those places, those are place names, Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, recognized that Samuel was attested as the prophet of Yahweh. Yahweh continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Me meaning what? That as time is going to go forward, Samuel is going to grow, God is going to be with him, people are going to see it, they're going to attend to Samuel as a prophet. They're going to recognize him as a prophet of God. Samuel is going to, going to go into the temple, even into the Holy of Holies, in order to speak with God, and God's going to speak with him. That's what's happening. That's how Samuel becomes this, this, the, this, this great prophet. Samuel is really the first, setting aside Moses. After Moses, um, Samuel is the first of the great prophets of God. He's not a writing prophet in that... Um, this book of Samuel isn't a book that he wrote, not like um, Hosea wrote the book of Hosea, but he's one of the great prophets, and he will be the last judge because he is going to be the one who anoints the first king of Israel in a story we're still coming to. So Samuel is given to God's service, grows up, called by God, has God's favor, his God's grace is poured out upon um, Samuel, and God makes sure that people listen to him. Because the time of people doing what is right in their own eyes needs to come to an end. So, it's just a great story. I just, I just picture little Samuel going in time after time after time. So, any thoughts or questions about chapter 3? Really showing Samuel taking on his vocation. Yes? Let me come over because the air conditioning is very loud right here. You're saying that Samuel is about 12-ish. Do you see a correlation between Samuel and Jesus Christ at that age? Do I see a corollary between Samuel and Jesus? To some extent, Samuel was called and summoned by God. Jesus is called, right? Um, Samuel grows in favor with God and grows in wisdom, and God is with him. And same true for Jesus. Okay, so I, I think sure, 
Sure, you, 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 you see in Samuel um, a pattern of what? What's the key word? The key word is faithfulness. Samuel will be faithful to God. He will be faithful to the vocation that God gives him. He will be willing to speak words to Israel that they don't want to hear. Because that's what a really good prophet does. A prophet of God is not a yes man. A prophet of God speaks the words of pro that, that God wants the Israel to hear. So, so sure, and it reminds us that one of the ways, one of the roles of Jesus is a prophet of Israel. Because Jesus brings forth God's word in his time. Right? A thousand years later, millennium later, he's bringing forth God's word. So, sure. And um, we don't know much about Samuel's youth as we don't know much about Jesus' youth. We do get the story of Samuel's birth as we got a story of Jesus' birth. And there's, a, there's something miraculous in Samuel's birth as there is in Jesus' birth. I guess we could go on a while, huh? Yes. Yes. Anything else? How, how is the Jewish religion being propagated at this point? I mean, Samuel's getting it direct from God. It doesn't sound like he's picking it up at Shabbat or Saturday school or anything. How is it being propagated? You mean carried on like from generation to generation? You know, so you get it with bad, the bad brothers that seem not to have gotten the message. Hunter. Okay, so, so here's the question I hear you asking me, Mike. How does it go on from generation to generation? Because they're not trying to evangelize. Okay, you're born into it. But still, how does it go on? And the answer is not well. Right. Right. It's, no, no, really. Like, not well. Well, they don't have the book of Genesis sitting in scrolls in the temple at this point, or Exodus. Or well, but they do have scrolls. They do have some writings. I, I, I think all scholars would agree that by this time they have, they, they have some things. They have the Ark of the Covenant. They don't have them in the fully finished form that they might emerge later, okay? But they have something. They, ha they have to because they have the Law of Moses. And the Law of Moses is something that's referred to in this. And somehow they built a tabernacle. Where does the tabernacle come from? Tabernacle comes from the book of Exodus. Contains so they have something. But... That's not enough. Let me tell you a shocking story. About 600 years before Jesus, the Jews are working on the temple. They're doing like a capital project. Okay, they're, I don't know, working on the, expanding the bathrooms or something, whatever it is. And they're working, 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 and they crack into a wall, and you know what they find? The book of the law, basically. The book of the law. And... The book, in other words, they find the book of the law. And they take it to a prophet named Huldah, which is a her, she, a prophetess. They could have taken it to Jeremiah, who just lived a few miles down the road, but they, they took it to Huldah. And Huldah says, yes, this is God's word. And the king Josiah tore his robe in half in mourning because he understood the importance of what had happened, the significance of what had happened, that they had lost the knowledge of the book of the law and they had to find it, which tells you that, that this stuff from Mount Sinai forward is not like one smooth little line. No, no, no. It's this big, big cliffs. How do they get to the point where everyone did what was right in their own eyes? Well, clearly it's not being, it's not being carried from generation to generation very well, which means what for Christians in 2023? We need to make sure it is carried well from generation to generation because just even just having the, the printed Bibles is not enough. That's not enough. This is carried on by the community because the Bible belongs to the community. The Bible needs to be read by a community, whether it's Jewish, long ago or Christian now, it need, that's how it has to happen. And so if we, if we don't do that, if we, don't, if we drop the ball, it's not going to go on very well. And you'll, because we probably haven't done a great job over the last 50 years, it's why researchers like Christian Smith, who I respect a lot, says, look, we've been letting Christianity change before our very eyes. 
And for so many American Christians, what they think of as Christianity is actually a folk religion. They have lost. They have lost the historic Orthodox Christian faith. And it's boiled down to be nice. Jesus is around to help you once in a while. You know, and God has kind of got it all started, but he's not involved anymore. He's kind of an absentee landlord type. And he's right. Christian Smith is. And so the burden is on us to, it has to go from generation to generation because we all have to be reborn. You see, that's the thing. You might think, well, okay, but I've come to, the, come to God, the Holy, I've been reborn. Well, what about your kids? Are, are they then reborn too by virtue of being your son? No, they must be reborn. They must come to Christ themselves. So you're going to, in the Old Testament, wow, you just see time and again the tragedy of a people who in many ways just, just, just give it all up. It's like they give it away. Good question. Well, my answer is not well. Okay, anything else? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so Patty, what you're saying is yes, it, 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 God's judgment of, of Eli and his house, his family, illustrates that God is a God of justice but a God of mercy as well, because he's standing beside the bedside of Samuel saying, okay, we're going to press on with this. Nobody's, I'm being ignored. Everybody's doing it's right in their own eyes. They're forgetting me, they have forgotten me, but we're gonna press on, right? Because God is determined to rescue humanity. So what actually happens to Eli? We're gonna find, you're gonna find out, oh yes. <laughs> You want to you find out when the hammer's going to fall, don't you, on Eli and his sons? Yes. So, hymn number 593. Hymn number 593? Here okay. I am, Lord. Yes. It is I, Lord. Yes. I have heard you calling in the night. Yes. All that chorus says directly, wow. And, but the, the verses don't seem to go with it. But it doesn't come from the story of Samuel. It doesn't? It's oh, my goodness. Chapter six, chapter six of Isaiah. Okay. Right now. No wonder it didn't say. Yeah, it's chapter six. <laughs> it's chapter six of Isaiah. It's Isaiah who says, "Here am I, Lord." Thank you. Yes, you are so welcome. Yes. Um, I have a question. What do, do you believe that God is with us today in everything, and that we have to listen? And a lot of times we don't listen. We know He's there. And we know he's telling us what to do, but we don't listen. Yes, I, God is absolutely with us. God dwells in us in a way that he did not dwell with the Israelites, right? Because the Holy Spirit, who is God's empowering presence, the third person of the triune God, dwells in each of us. And do we listen well? No, we don't listen well. What is the primary way in which to listen to God? Prayer. Prayer. I'm, I'm going to suggest something else. Gifts and services. Gifts and services, sure. I'm talking about where, what's the primary way to listen to God so that you can come to know what is right and what is wrong and what God's, and what God's will is for us. Exactly. It's, it's scripture. It's the Bible. We, God has given us this library of 66 writings 60, that, so that we can come to know God and come to know what God's will for us is. It's the only guard against us just, well, laying in the dark, listening, thinking I'm listening to God when I'm listening to my own indigestion or my own pathologies or whatever it might be. It's, it's why, I don't want to get into all of this about the Methodist Church, but it is why the, the fights in the Methodist Church though expressed in different ways, are ultimately about scriptural authority. That's, that's what the fight really is. 
about scriptural authority because if we don't embrace scriptural authority and argue things out on the basis of scripture as Luther wanted to do with the king of the Holy Roman Empire then we are where are we we end up doing what each of us think is right in our own eyes judges 25 so you pray that you could pray over the scriptures I'm not I, I'm a big believer in prayer I've been taught a lot about prayer from my wife whose birthday is today um, <laughs> okay um, but too many Christians ignore scripture or they keep a little book of Bible promises on the back of their toilet or they 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 just like the good little parts and they want to skip the tough parts or they just don't even fool with it because it takes we have to apply ourselves to it we have, there, there's effort to be done we we're ready to be educated in every other aspect of our lives we devote countless years to being educated my friend Harold here's a dentist who knows how many years of education it took for Harold right and you never doubted that it was something you needed to do okay Christians tend to not see their faith that way that it's sort of content free it's all about my feelings and I want my feelings to be good and and but there's nothing to actually learn well there's a great deal to learn and a great deal to actually unlearn yes Ah, well, you see, because, be, okay, scripture is God's word for us, and it's also the spiritual journal of God's people, so it speaks a great deal of truth, so there's a great deal of humanity and all of our brokenness in the pages of scripture, just as it is on an episode of Vera, if you don't know what Vera is, Brett Box, outstanding British detective show, anyway, yeah, so, I mean, it, okay, don't, don't get the wrong idea about that. I better clean this up a little bit. <laughs> Patty, there are things Patty and I turn off. Of course we do. That's a lot. Shows that are, are interested only in evil, the destruction of the good, only in gore. No, but we do like a good murder mystery. Father, we've... <laughs> We tried a Father Brown or two. They were maybe a not quite edgy enough. Vera is one of our favorites. Vera. If we could find more Veras, we would be happy. So, with uh, yeah. So don't mistake. Okay. So we we don't watch anything. We we're selective. Everybody clear about that? I don't want stories going around about you know. Scott's gonna watch the movie Saw episode seven or something. No, 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 no. <laughs> yes. You can tell them how nervous I am that to watch anything that's a scary yeah. thing has to be during the day with the lights on. Yeah, even, even if it's scary, we, we don't watch anything gory. But even if it's scary, Patty has to be at home, not at the movie theater, with the lights on in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> Only way she'll do it, because it's just, just too, too scary for her. So, okay. <laughs> how did we get here? Okay, I don't know. Anything else? Okay, well, let's see what happens with the ark. Because the ark is about to leave home, never to return. Okay? This is, see, there you go. This is, this is how it happens. Indiana Jones. Okay, so look at chapter 4. So, <clears throat> the first words and Samuel's words came to all Israel goes with the end of chapter 3. That's what I don't like about this iPad, but I'm stuck using it because I can make the font as big as I want. So, so go back to chapter 3 at the end, whether you have an iPad or not. 
Yahweh continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Next. Okay, go, go. Ah. Next verse. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Samuel, God gives the word, Samuel carries that word to Israel. That is the quintessential description of what a prophet does. Now, at this time and in the years to come, there will be many prophets hanging around Israel. They're not all genuine prophets. If, you know, later on in the book of Kings, you find out there's a bunch of bad prophets, but they, yeah. But Samuel is the real deal, the real deal. Okay, so chapter four. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. Now the Philistines are, I have a map. The Philistines are sea people who came down and settled on the coast. The Israelites are not sea people. They don't like the Mediterranean. The Philistines probably came from up in the Aegean area. People debate where, but they came down in the 11th, 12th century and settled on the coastline um, of Israel. And these cities like Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, um, uh, those, are, those are Philistine cities, which figure mightily in the stories of David that we'll get to later. But the Philistines are there, and they are going to be the prime enemy of Israel through all of the book of Samuel. Okay, so now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. And you can see Ebenezer and Aphek right up there. The distance is very small from Shiloh. I mean, this is a small, a small land. It's probably 25 miles, if that far, which is about the distance from my house to downtown Dallas. Very small distances are involved in this. So the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israels camped at Ebenezer on the east side and the Philistines at Aphek on the west, leaving an open space in between them where they will have battle. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Now, one thing about numbers in the Old Testament, they are, tend to be unrealistically high, okay? And it's just because they have different, they have what? Nobody's running around taking headcounts, first of all. Secondly, it, they're just not as concerned with that kind of thing as, as we are. And Inflating numbers like the size of the Israelite army or something is a way of reflecting their strength. But 4,000 is a lot. The world population is just not that large at this time. So, so that's why you run into numbers in scripture, like it says, 200, an army of 200,000. Really, they couldn't have fed an army of 200,000 people. You could, you could, we didn't have armies of 200,000 people until after the Industrial Revolution came. There, just, there was just no way to move them and feed them and arm them and all the rest of it. So, but that's, that's okay. It's just we modern day Westerners get consumed with these kind of things. We want to imagine we're reading like, you know, the Dallas Morning News or something here. Okay, the big thing is that they lost. You got that, right? They lost to the Philistines, the Israelites. Well, man, when, verse 3, when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did Yahweh bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? For the ancients, God is the first cause of all things. Sun rises, sun sets, rain comes, it dries out, you win, you lose, everything. So the elders of Israel say, let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So this is the idea that they came up with. They lose a battle with the Philistines, there'll be many more in the years and decades ahead. 
And so their idea is to go back to Silo, to get the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to haul it out to the battlefield and set it up in such a way, this is like Indiana Jones, isn't it? They're going to set it up in such a way that the power of God is with them. But what are they treating the Ark of the Covenant and even God like? An idol, magic, a talisman, a totem pole, a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot. I don't care. Call it anything you want. Is that what the Ark of the Covenant is about? No, it's about the covenant. They think they can control the power of God. They think if they haul that box out there that they will get God to do their bidding. That they'll go out there and <laughs> maybe lift the cover off. <laughs> and all of the scary dudes will come out for a minute, whatever. You, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what I mean. Has everybody here, has anybody here never seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, Charlotte. Watch it. It's a fun movie. Okay. So the, what, I, what I'm intrigued by is it isn't the soldiers who want to grab the ark and take it out. That I could understand more. But it's the elders of Israel who want to take the ark out to the battlefield. Take God. We're going to be able to control the power of God. We're going to move the power of God from here to there. And we're going to unleash the power of God on these Philistines. And we're going to win, win, win. Verse 4. So the people sent men to Shiloh. And they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh Almighty. Yahweh, El, Yahweh Shaddai. That's what it is in Hebrew. The Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. In this picture of the ark, the mercy seat is where God is enthroned. It's where you would go to, to encounter God, to meet God in that little, like a portal. That's how I, a portal right there on the mercy seat. Because God is enthroned between the cherubim. There, no, another point, these are not angels. Angels are not cherubim. Cherubim are these creatures who are made up of kind of multiple parts and have wings, like usually six wings, wings um, that cover their feet and wings that cover their eyes and wings, I guess, that they could use to fly. The cherubim are guardians. Eyes on the front, eyes in the back, just like my mother. Eyes in the front, eyes in the back. Um, so like when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and God puts the sword there, what else does God put there? A cherubim. Around the throne of God in Revelation, there are four cherubim guarding the throne of God. So they're not angels. Angels are different creatures. Cherubim are creatures. And you find cherubim in other ancient cultures besides the Hebrew culture. So, okay. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Oh, I bet they were. They were cheering this on. I bet they rode the thing out there. <laughs> it doesn't say that, I know, but... Because... He, he has he shown any willingness or ability to restrain his sons? No. He, does, he hasn't shown any ability or willingness to do that. Eli's old and he's weak. He has a couple of good moments we read about, but no, he doesn't. doesn't stop him. Off they go with the ark. Maybe they did ride it. I don't know. Well, verse 5. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, this is the camp where the army... The recently defeated army is encamped there at Ebenezer. All Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, Well, what's all this shouting about from the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of Yahweh had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Generally, everybody is afraid of everybody else's gods because these people, including the Israelites believe in a pantheon of 
in, in the existence of many gods and goddesses. The Hebrews, the Israelites at this time are not monotheistic. They just think they have the best God on the block. That's why, for example, in the Ten Commandments, it's a, God says, have worship no other gods, right? That's one of the, the, the top ten, worship no other gods. That isn't about worshiping your American Express card or something like that. That is about don't worship any pagan gods who have names like Baal and Astarte and Asherah. Don't do that. So they're not monotheistic yet. They will become monotheistic in, in, as, the year, as the centuries go by. But they do think they have the best God on the block, but everybody's a little bit afraid of everybody else's God. You know, because gods are gods and people are not. So the Philistines were afraid and said, a God has come into the camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They don't really understand what's happening. They don't even know what the Ark of the Covenant really is. They don't... They don't care. They would have picked up something from living so close to the Israelites, but they are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Well, you ain't know that story. Yeah. Be strong, Philistines. Man up. Wait. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that, that's what that is, right? Be men. Man up. Or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men, man up and fight. So they take their fear of what's happening and they use that to stoke their courage. They use the gods coming to the camp to stoke their courage. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. Back to my earlier comment. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So now we know what happened to the two sons, right? They just died in the battle there, and they lost the ark of the covenant. You know, I've never been much of a card player. I've been in a few poker games. I'm lousy. I'm terrible. I don't have a poker face at all. Consequently, I've never lost anything really valuable in such a game, but people have big things, important things. What have, they, what have the Israelites lost? They, they, they thought they could contain the power of God and they take the Ark of the Covenant out and they lose it not misplaced. They lose it to the Philistines. That's why, to go to this map, this will be coming up in, coming, in the coming chapters, the line is tracing the future of the ark. It never gets back to Shiloh. And there are some mighty fascinating stories that lie ahead around the ark. But the sad one is, that they, they just gave it up. They thought they could contain the power of God and they could decide where God was supposed to do and what God was supposed to do. And of course, we can't do that. You and I can't do that. We can't, we can't contain God and think that we, we can be the puppeteers. The Ark of the Covenant was not magic. That was, that was the part of the problem with these whole, to move to the Christian era, the whole splinters of the cross and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. There's no, there's no magic or special healing powers in the splinter of the cross or whatever. There are enough, I've been told there are enough splinters of the cross in Europe to construct a cathedral. <laughs> so we, we, we just have to be careful because we humans were kind of we're kind of drawn to that, to that sort of thing. And here they surrender to it and look what has happened. 
So let's read on, verse 12. Well, that same day, a Benjaminite, that is a um, Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. But he didn't stop it. He didn't use his authority as high priest and judge of Israel to stop it. Could he have? Maybe. I don't know. But he didn't. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was now 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. Remember earlier, in an earlier chapter, we were told that he couldn't see very well. And he told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. And Eli asked, well, what happened to my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. And the army has suffered losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. You know, this is, you're going to see when we get to, to, to David that this scene very much foreshadows the story of David, from which there's a famous William Faulkner novel, O Absalom, O Absalom. David waiting for word from the battle. And here it's been Eli waiting for word from the battle. Well, when the man, in verse 18, when the man mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. Answer the question from over here. For he was an old man and he was heavy. I don't know how heavy. Don't ask me how heavy. Just really heavy, I guess. Heavy enough to be noted in the word, very word of God. He was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. Okay, now for, okay, 40 in the Bible is a funny thing. 40 in the Bible isn't really a calendar option. Okay, because they're all over the place. 40s are all over the place. 40 is a Hebrew way of talking about a very long time. And you can connect many of them. Um, the, the Israelites wandered the wilderness for how long? 40 years. How long is Jesus tempted in the wilderness in Matthew's Gospel? 40 days. How long does it rain in the book of Genesis? Right? So they all connect in different ways and we could all, we could talk about exactly how that is and wow and but 40 years is a very, very long time that Eli has been um, leading Israel as high priest, as judge, and it has, it's gone terribly. Gone terribly. Verse 19. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by the labor pains. As she was dying, childbirth is so risky in this world, right? As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she didn't respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her husband and her father-in-law. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And again, you're just driven home by the state of things in Israel. How, how far, how far gone the Israelites are. How, 
they did what was right in their own eyes. God, there's no visions. God's word was rare. Um, now they, they take the Ark of the Covenant into battle and they lose it. It's captured. And so it's, it's, it's the, really the lowest, the lowest of the low. So when we come back in two weeks, we're going to see some of the stories about what happens to the Ark. But we will do that then. So let me pause now because I have a minute or two to see if we have any questions or things before I wrap up for today. Yes? Uh, a couple weeks ago we prayed for a local radio personality, Hal Jay. Yeah. He was down on the transplant was for a heart. He actually had a heart transplant Saturday. Well, good for him. That's great. That's great, really. Good for him. I know he and his family are very grateful. Good. Okay, so anything else anybody wants to talk about? Okay, well, will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, help us embrace the truth that as disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ, we, we have our mission, we have our work, we have our vocation to make disciples, to teach the faith, to learn so that we can teach, to share this, to, to, to see that, this, that the truth of who you are and who we are, the truth of your work in this world, this good news um, is shared forward from generation to generation because without you, without your word, we are indeed lost. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Adios, everybody.